is Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 through 22. This is God's Word. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithorn and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dwelt, dealt well with the midwives, and the women multiplied and grew strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Our Father in heaven, we trust you. We trust you because you have shown us in your word that you are trustworthy. That right now, as we come to you in this, the Word of God, with the variety of challenges even on our own lives, we recognize that there's no other place that we can turn for help other than you. Would you carve out a place now in our heart for the Word? Would you make a place and a home within us for what it is you want to instruct us in this day? That to the degree that this message is in accord with that word, that it would be compelling and transformative in our lives to any degree that this message would be in error or off to the, to the left or to the right rather than the center of what it is that you would have communicate. We pray that it would be forgotten, that it would be struck from the record of even our memory. For we want only those things which will be good and right and true and edifying for your people. Lord, as we humble ourselves even now before you in this word, we would pray that you would come. And would you now, please, as we are desperate and dependent upon you, 
Would you meet us with the gospel of grace? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It's so wonderful to celebrate that baptism uh, with the Hendrians. If you have your bulletins, you might just look ahead to page, let's see, page 10, and you'll see the Hendrians are going to make another appearance this morning as their son, Charlie Hendrian, uh, comes to the Lord's table for the very first time. Friends, that's the story that we're in right there. As we baptize James here this morning, what are we asking the Lord to do? We're asking the Lord to work in the life of that young man, that he would be faithful to his promises, that he would change us from the inside out, and then to see in the story of the Hendrian family what we would love to see happen and multiply generationally across the families of this congregation and across the world, and that is seeing uh, boys and girls being raised unto Christ and God through his grace, bringing them to a saving knowledge of Jesus where they entrust themselves to him to follow him all the days of their life. You know, it's important in a passage like we just read to assert the fact that our God loves children. Pharaoh does not love children in this text. He treats them without dignity. He kills them. An ethnic kind of genocide we see being um, given here in the edict of Pharaoh. And there is nothing more distant from the heart of God than that action from Pharaoh that we see in this text. He's been giving promises in the word beginning back in Genesis regarding the offspring of Abraham. Regarding the fact that the redemptive line comes in and through the seed of the woman. And we see very clearly that Pharaoh here is aligning himself against the very mission of God himself. As we look at this text, I want you to see how important it is that we love the things that God loves in the way that he loves them. And that we learn even as a church community in a culture that doesn't always love children as they ought to be loved. In fact, in a country where that kind of love and care, especially for children who are in womb, is missing. And as we see staggering numbers of children being robbed from life in our own day and time. It might seem like we're a million miles away from something like Pharaoh. We look, yes, somewhat more sophisticated, uh, somewhat more medicalized and compartmentalized, but none the more horrific for what it is we recognize even in the context of our own country that we would pray, by God's grace, he would remove such a scourge from us. He loves children. He loves children. As we look at this text together, I want you to see that There's a spiritual battle going on. There's a spiritual battle going on right now for your heart and for our hearts in the world in which we're in. There's a spiritual battle here in this text that is significant. And I want you to see that the clash between men and nations is not merely a a clash of people or people groups. It's not a matter of edicts of leaders. But actually there's a spiritual battle that's going on in this text. There's a battle that I like to call underneath the battle. 
of this text of which we labor and war against, not against flesh and blood, do we? But against powers and principalities. That's what the scripture teaches us. It's happening among us, whether we recognize it or know it or not. But you see it in technicolor here in Exodus chapter 1. So I want you to see that though there's a battle here, there's a battle underneath this battle. It's a spiritual battle. We must be savvy to it. And then somewhat ironically, I want you to see by the end of this text that there's a, well, there's a, there's a lie in this text. There's a lie in this text. But it's a lie that actually leads us to the truth in a really quite remarkable way. The clash, the clash that's behind the clash, and then this lie that actually leads us to the truth. You know, it's been 430 years that the people of Israel have been in Egypt at the point that we are in Exodus chapter 1. It's a long time. It's longer than this country's been around, my friends. 430 years. They have received the promise given through Abraham that's extended through the opening genealogy here in Exodus chapter 1, which we looked at last week together. And yes, the Lord has been faithful to his promises. Didn't we note that last week when we gathered that the Lord had given to Abraham a promise that his people would be as the stars in the sky if he could number them? That his people would be as the sand on the seashore if they could number them. And indeed, what do we see has happened to the people of Israel here in Exodus 1? They have grown into a massive multitude. God has been faithful to his promises. But not all of his promises have been fulfilled at this point. For instance, the promise of the land. The promise of the land has been nowhere in sight in the last 430 years. They have been in Egypt abiding as, as wayfaring, waiting for the promises of God to be fulfilled 430 years. Undoubtedly, there's some Israelites out there saying, How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord, before the promise of the land comes true? By the end of this text, you know they're shouting, How long, O Lord? As things turn south here in their relationship with, with Egypt. And yet we see in the whole of the story of Exodus, leading into the other four books remaining in what's called the Pentateuch, those first five books of the Old Testament, by the end of Deuteronomy, the opening up of the book of Joshua, what do we see? We see the fulfillment of the promise that's given uh, to Abraham. We see them enter in across the Jordan River into the land of Canaan. And we're beginning into that journey when we begin to study the book of Exodus. The whole word Exodus means to depart, to exit. So we know that's coming. And this is the beginning of the fulfillment of those promises. But things are going to get worse before they get better. That's what Exodus 1 teaches us. That right alongside the fulfillment of God's promises is very often the suffering and trials of his people. Right alongside the fulfillment of God's promises, we see the suffering and the trials of his people. You'll note here how Pharaoh very clearly aligns himself against the promises of God. He sees in the people of Israel not a blessing, not a fulfillment of the promises of God. He remembers not the story of Joseph and God's provision through his interpretation of the visions previously in the other dynasty of the Pharaohs. 
where God took care of Egypt and the people of Israel through those seven years of famine by giving them those seven years of plenty previous to it. He remembers none of that. He knows nothing of that. He now sees what is God's promise fulfilled as a threat. These multitude of Hebrews. The opening of Exodus chapter 1, the Pharaoh sees nothing but a threat and he's fearful. These people have grown so large, it could be that if a battle were to take place and our enemies were to show up, they would yoke themselves, create an alliance with our enemies and go to war against us and ultimately notice escape from the land. That's his concern. Well, notice right at the very beginning how he's already aligned against God and his promises. We know that God has promised Israel a land. We know an exit is necessary from the land of Egypt to fulfill God's promise. One who was walking in line with God's promise would be celebrating and seeking to induce the fulfillment of those promises. That's not Pharaoh's spirit. He doesn't want to see the people of Israel escape from the land. Why? Because they're cheap labor. He's going to turn them into slaves. He presents to them taskmasters. And in a litany of terms from verse 11 to verse 14, we see that he places a burden on them that is so great that it's actually meant by its language to demoralize and even diminish the number of Israelites in Egypt. Look at the language of verse 11. Taskmasters were set over them, notice, to afflict them with heavy burdens. Verse 12, the people were oppressed. Verse 13, he ruthlessly made the people work as slaves. Verse 14, he made their life bitter with hard service. Could the text be any more clear? That Pharaoh is desiring here to demoralize the people of Israel with such labor that they are broken down that their allegiance is ultimately swayed to him, that they would never think about rebelling against a king that operates this powerfully against them, that he would keep them under his thumb, and that in so doing, the language of the text is so violent that he would begin to, as it were, thin out the multitude. That if I can put it this way, he will literally work the people of Israel to death. He is wholly aligned against God and against the promises of God. What has God done? A multitude of people. He wants to thin them out. Where is God headed? A promised land. He wants to keep them close to Egypt. What has God called them to? Followership of him. What does Pharaoh want? Allegiance to his own leadership. Do you see underneath what is taking this place in this passage with men and nations is actually a spiritual battle. Do you know in Egypt at the time, pharaohs were considered deities. Pharaohs required the people to actually honor and worship them, to give to them the praise as a manifestation of God himself. By virtue of their place and power over the people of Egypt, they were treated as and called the people to honor them in the temples as a deity. Do you see we have two deities in this text? We have a false god who's claiming allegiance, who has an agenda and a plan that's aligned against the God of all gods, the maker of heaven and earth, the redeemer of all of his people, the God known as Yahweh, the people of Israel's God. He's aligned himself against it. And this passage is teaching us that the clash between Egypt 
And the Hebrew people is actually a clash between the true God and the false God. In fact, it runs even deeper than that. It runs all the way to the core of the very promises of the gospel itself. See, God actually shows us in here that he is the one who is mighty to save. Though Pharaoh has come up with a plan, a mighty plan, that looks like it should succeed to enslave the people, to diminish their numbers, to demoralize them, to keep them close in hand at Egypt, what do we see, what do we see actually happens in the text? The more that they are oppressed, the more that they multiply. Now, as you're looking out that in a closed world system, and we're simply doing the mathematics of consequences or as, as actions lead to reactions and, and plots and plans lead to certain ends and consequences, it looked like Pharaoh's plan should work. But Pharaoh didn't take into account a certain factor. You know what that factor is called? God. God, his word, his promises, his control, his sovereignty, his plan. Pharaoh's acting like he's God. In fact, the whole of the Egyptian community treats him like he is God. As if men needed help thinking they were gods. He's got a whole bunch of people bolstering that false notion. But now until we turn our gaze really towards ourselves and realize that we're, though not as powerful as Pharaoh, and maybe not as wicked, at least manifestly in terms of the expressions of what we see the commands being given in this text, how many of us live in functionally without reference to God? We make our plans, we set our agendas, and we factor not God. And then we are frustrated And we try again. We come up with other plans. And we factor not God. This is the story of what's taking place in Exodus 1. And with each new concocting of plan, the ante ups a little bit with Pharaoh. When he begins to see that the oppression and the enslavement is not working, he says, I tell you what, let's go to plan B. Plan B will be, I will... I will tell the Hebrew midwives that when a son is born to the people of Israel, they are immediately to kill the son and to let the daughter live. We'll start with the most vulnerable among the Hebrews. That's where we'll weed them out. And we'll do it somewhat um, subversively. We'll do it a little bit under the cover. And I'm going to delegate it out to the people who are actually responsible for safe delivery. I'm going to make them instruments, murderous instruments to weed out and thin out the people of Israel. That's his plan. He raises the stakes, doesn't he? His plan didn't work, so he's upping the ante. He's a little frustrated that things haven't gone according to plan. So he's tightening the screws. This undoubtedly will work. And yet, what do we see in the text? Shifra and Pua, these two Hebrew midwives, probably leaders among the midwives of Israel, two women who are, by any acknowledgement in the ancient Near East at this particular point in time, the weakest and most marginalized individuals in the community. 
decide to resist the king's command. And to simply say no to his judgment to murder the baby boys as they are born to the Hebrews. By two weak women, the greatest power in the Egyptian world and his plan is undone. You know, it's a picture of how our God works, isn't it? We think that something's really happening when the person at the top is on our side. That's when God's really at work. That's when he's really moving. And yet when we be turned through the pages of Scripture, we see constantly that he's using, even as Paul will later echo in 1 Corinthians, the weak things of the world to shame the, shame the strong. The foolish things of the world to shame the wise. The things that are not to shame the things that, that are. Through these two midwives and their courage, what amazing courage they have. That they would stand against, in threat of their own life, the edict of the Pharaoh. Knowing that what he has commanded them to do is evil, it is wrong. And that they have a higher allegiance. That there's more than Pharaoh in this land. They, you see, factored in God. They factored him in. They knew that his presence, his commands, his word went over and above Pharaoh. And they did what Christians have done for centuries. And that is they have faithfully in the civil realm disobeyed the evil and wicked commands of a tyrannical ruler. Here it is, these women, whom the Lord now, notice, is setting before us as an example of faithfulness. Notice, Pharaoh was fearful of the Hebrews, and so it led him to a plot of death. The women, are told, we're told, are fearful of God, and it led them to a plot of life. You see, that's really the difference between the God of the scriptures and the God who is no God at all, whose name is Pharaoh, is that when we begin to make fear of man the motivation of the things for which we do, when we grasp for our own power and riches, when we seek for our own fame and our own name, we wind up whether actually killing people or just treading over them in order to make a name for ourselves, pushing them down in order that we might rise up, a spirit of the age begins to take over us and we begin to realize that we have been swept up into what is actually the spirit of the evil one. Now, why would I say that? Well, you'll remember that the very first telling of the gospel comes in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Do you remember this? Right after the fall of Adam and Eve as they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... In Genesis chapter 3, God speaks to the serpent and he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and between the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you, speaking to the woman, he shall bruise you on the heel, but you, O serpent, you will ultimately by the seed of the woman be bruised on the head, literally crushed or killed. There's a death sentence here. The evil one that's given in Genesis 3.15. And it's a victory declaration ahead of time. 
in the scriptures that's ultimately fulfilled with Christ. Isn't he that fulfillment? He's the fulfillment in this text. He ultimately is the seed of the woman that's going to crush the head of the serpent. But there's multiple fulfillments and foreshadowings of this throughout the scriptures. And this is one of them. Notice that we have Pharaoh aligning against the fulfillment of God's promises at every level. And we have Pharaoh zeroing in on what children? The male children of the Hebrew people. Did you notice the pronoun in Genesis 3.15? He will crush you on the head. We're looking for a male child. We're looking for a baby boy to redeem the people of Israel. What has Pharaoh decided to do? Kill the baby boys. What is Pharaoh doing? He is standing in the very path of the fulfillment of the redemption of the gospel. That's what he's doing. There's a spiritual clash here. Not just men and nations. Not just physical happenings. There's a spiritual clash that's underneath this clash. And what we see is that this is no less than actually a declaration of war against God himself. And all of his promises coming forth from Pharaoh. And yet with all of that power, Shifra and Pua, these two Hebrew midwives... Notice we know who they are. We, we notice their, their names. Did you notice we don't know who Pharaoh is? Did you, did you catch that? Pharaoh is a title. He's, he's a king. In fact, scholars love to wrangle over wondering who is the actual Pharaoh at this point in time as the story unfolds. And there's a number of debates over the exact time period and who might have been ruling at this particular account. We are very, very eager to know who the Pharaoh is at this point in time. And yet God is telling us in a not so subtle way that he's more interested in these two women. Than he is and who the Pharaoh is. Yes, Pharaoh. Yeah, I want you to see these two women. What's really important is Shifra and Puah. This is, this, is who, this is who I want you to know. Now as they faithfully uphold the principle of life and become, as one commentator put it, heroines of life in their own day and time. As we look at them I want you to see very clearly how they respond in this context to what must have been the dreaded conversation that they hoped would never happen. You know, one day someone saw a toddler and then another one and then another one running around that were Hebrews and they were saying, hmm, I didn't think there were supposed to be Hebrew boys by that age running around here, just the girls. You see, what, what Pharaoh really wanted was a lot of women in whom Egyptian men um, could have children with in order to create a large army. And he didn't want Hebrew men populated as if they could be able to go to war against them. This is a strategy. And we see these young men now growing up, what's going on, and eventually we know they're going to be called, so to speak, into the principal's office. To be asked that very concerning question, how could you do this? That's the language of Pharaoh in this text. How could you do this? As if they had done something wrong. 
And did you notice their response? Their response is a fascinating one. You don't anticipate it. If you're a first reader of the book of Exodus, you're not really sure how it is that they might respond in this circumstance. Do they just stay tight-lipped? Uh, do they, do they um, confess in, 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 in uh, sorrow to what it is that they've done? And, and no, they actually tell a story, a dubious one. They say, listen, the, the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. <laughs> you should hear a poke in the ribs there. No small little bit of jesting is going on. The Hebrew women are literally, if we were to translate it, full of life or lively. It actually is a term that is sometimes even quite regularly used in the Scripture to describe uh, animals and the life of animals. Now, nothing derogatory uh, meant in that connection that's here in the text. But, but instead, this idea of lively is, if you can go back in your minds to, you know, watching, you know, um, mama rabbit have her rabbits or, or, or mama cat have her cats, and she, she has them, right? And then she immediately uh, gets up and goes about her business. That's the picture here. The Hebrew women are the type that don't need much convalescing. Uh, when it comes to this birthing thing, it's like, boom, and we're done. And then we stand up and we go do the laundry. <laughs> They're full of life. They're full of vitality. That's the language of the text. They're not like the Egyptian women, you know, who need weeks on end of people bringing meals to their house. And <laughs> they need a two-room suite at Williamson Medical to be able to make it through, you know, pressing the little button to get the nurse to come in, right? They don't need any of that. Not these Hebrew women. They are full of life, full of vitality. And so when we as the midwives show up, we're not even needed. The children are born and there's no way to secretly murder them. Because the mother is not out of commission. She's very alert. She's very aware. And she's taking care of her own children on her own, by the way. Now, one commentator said, and I think he's, I think he's right about this, especially if you just get in the shoes of the members here in this, this text, if Pharaoh was really buying this, he's a couple of bricks short of a pyramid. <laughs> At some level, this, this, re, this story, this tale that's being given here by the women is likely, in one very real sense, not meant to be, as it were, fully persuasive. There's something of a jest that's likely involved in this tale. But one of the things that we know very clearly is that whatever shred of truth may be within the statement that is there, the women are not uh, telling, as it were, um, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God. There is something of a, of a fib, of a, of a tall tale, Oh, I'll say it. It's a lie. There's something of a lie here in the text. Now, here's what's greatly concerning, right? Well, we've seen this clash. We've seen this clash behind the clash, the spiritual warfare, the promises of Abraham coming under attack through, through Pharaoh. And now we see this moment of, of, of crucible 
that these women are put in, and their response is a lie that you remember I said actually, in a very real sense, leads us to the truth. What do I mean? Well, first, this, this lie. How are we to, well, how are we to understand it? What, what are we, to, what are we to, to do with it? Well, as you might imagine, scholars over the years have been very um, split on how to deal with this particular moment in the text. Um, one of the most persuasive scholars in the this century, St. Augustine, uh, wrote on this particular uh, story and in his writing and connecting it to the story of Rahab, you remember, very similar circumstance later in the uh, Old Testament. Uh, connecting it says that what the women did here was, was reprehensible. He, he says that the approach the ladies took in this context was, it was sin. They shouldn't have lied. Now, many scholars follow Augustine. Augustine is a big figure in the early part of the church. And many follow him throughout the medieval age, even leading up to, yes, John Calvin, who upholds the same reading of this particular text here in Exodus chapter 1. Now, I tell you all of that to say I enter with fear and trepidation into disagreeing with these men. Now, why do I do that? Well, one of, the, I think, the most persuasive aspects of this particular text is the fact that in no way does the Bible actually speak disparagingly of what the women did. Let's always pay attention to the Scriptures, not just our own minds and our thoughts. Remember, God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Let's listen to how he actually engages the circumstance. Let's just look here at the text. Look at verse 17. These women are described as those who fear God. Verse 20, because of what they did, God dealt well with the midwives. Verse 21, and because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. That's a remarkable commendation that's flowing in this text. When we go look in Hebrews and in James later, it actually harkens back to these women and tells us to look to their faith and who they are as examples that we are to follow. Nowhere do we find in the Bible anything negative spoken about what these women have done. That deserves a very deep, fair shake as we consider how to treat this particular section of the Bible. Well, how can this be? I know you're asking uh, that question. How can this be? How do we handle this? Is it, therefore, is, are you suggesting, Pastor Nate, that it's okay to lie? You know, there's a text later in the book of Exodus called the Commandments, and in commandment number nine, we're told to not bear false witness. That's the language of the text. Well, these women bearing false witness. Is that what they're doing? Well, there's a lot we could say about that. I rest in the fact that we're going to get to the commandments eventually, right? And sometime 2025 will be in uh, the commandments. But I do think one important uh, treatment is to understand how the scholars have thought about lying over the years. And I want to really conclude leading us to how this lie actually tells the truth or helps us lead to the truth. Uh, Jay Dalma, in his book on the Ten Commandments, actually a commentary on the Ten Commandments, highlights the three uh, typical lies that, that are told. 
There's three, there's three kinds, three qualities, we might say, of lies. Uh, the one is called the malicious lie. This is the lie that is that's bad uh, all the time, under all circumstances. Uh, this is the lie that we tell when we have done something wrong and we say, we haven't done anything wrong. And we know that we've done something wrong and we lie about it in order not to receive justice, the consequences for what it is that we've done. It's also the kind of lie that we tell when we say something about someone else that's not true in order to get them in trouble. Um, and thus an injustice is served towards another person. It's malicious in that case. It's the malicious lie. In fact, that seems to be the language that um, commandment number nine is actually operating in. The language of bear false witness is a legal testimony. That's the language that's being used there. Bear false witness. A witness bearer is someone who actually enters a courtroom. Um, it's not just someone who's in every context. So there's something very specific, I think, that is in view there in, in commandment number nine. And the malicious lie definitely is a violation of the ninth commandment at all, at all times. But there's a second kind of lie, and I, I don't know who you are out there, but you've all, well, you've all done this. You've all done this, you scoundrels, you. It's the, it's the jocular lie, or we might call it the jovial lie, right? This is when the package comes in from Amazon, and your wife asks you, not that this has ever happened to me, but your wife asks you, what's in, in the package? And you go, oh, a, a, a book, because it usually is a book that, that's come in and it's for a research uh, project that I'm, that I'm working on. And, and actually inside that package is her birthday gift. And when I don't want her to, to open it and uh, I, I want to surprise her later with that uh, gift. And so she knows that if it's a book, she'll be like, ah, oh, whatever. Yeah, you open it, Right. But what if, what if I said, no, it's your, it's your birthday gift, right? <laughs> Her spirit is changed towards that Amazon package and interest is, is sparked. But I want to surprise her. And so, you know, well, all of you who've thrown that 40-year-old 40, you know, 40 surprise party and you have told some whoppers, <laughs> right? We're going to go here, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do that. And you feel bad the whole time you're doing it, but you're kind of excited at the same time, right? This lie typically has not been considered a violation of the ninth commandment. Now, okay, I was joking with the early service, but, you know, this kind of lying I actually witnessed yesterday on a text string with a, maybe a bunch of Cornerstone members. I cannot neither affirm nor deny if there were Cornerstone members on this text string. Um, but in there, there was allegations and there were, there were memes and there were all kinds of things that indicated um, untruths were being shared and they were all done with the tongue deeply in the cheek. And today we have begun church discipline on all of these people. No, we have not. The jocular lie. The third of the lies is what is sometimes referred to as the lie of necessity. Now that may make your skin crawl just a little bit. But if that makes your skin crawl, you, you'll definitely appreciate the Latin, right? If ever your skin crawls, just go to the Latin. It helps you. <laughs> the Latin is um, mendacium officiosum. Now, 
That sounds like a Harry Potter spell, if, you're, if you say it quickly, like, you know, I need a, a madakium officiosum, you know. But it literally means a lie in benefit for your neighbor. A, a lie that in the moment told is the only way that you can see to uphold the greater measures of the law. We famously think here of Corrie ten Boom, don't we? And those noble Germans during the Holocaust who, who hid Jews. My, how things are not different. Who hid Jews in attics and in, in closets and underneath floor uh, boards in, in order to protect them. And uh, when those uh, German policemen came uh, in order to ask the question, the haunting question, do you have Jews here? What did they say? Well, there's all kinds of things, actually. There are stories of people who didn't say anything. There are stories of people who confessed, and then the Lord protected the, them from even being found. Amazing stories. Praise the Lord for those stories. Many of those noble Germans said, no, we do not have Jews here. And they lied straight through their teeth in love for their neighbor. Seeing no other way in a broken and fallen world, in the twistedness and complexity of the moment, in which to be able to care for and love the one in the midst of the threat. Now, these are the kind of things, genuinely, I remember in my own ethics class in seminary that we would go over and over these kinds of things, right? To figure out what was the right thing to do. And it's easy sometimes when you're sitting in a pew on Sunday morning to theorize, and some of you are like, oh, yes, I understand that, but oh, I'm still not sure, you know, and you're debating it yourself. I think it's much easier if you could just put yourself in your own home and you wake up in the bump of the night, and it's a group of criminals who've come in, and they've come to rape your wife and steal your daughter. And they're hiding. And they ask you where they are. What do you say? It's easier, isn't it, then? Who is Pharaoh? Who is he? He's them. He's a wicked man. That will only use that truth to destroy those in whom you love and know. You do not in those moments, according to the lie of necessity and according to the lie of loving your neighbor. You do not give them the truth. They are not deserving of the truth. You know, one of... Uh, one of the writers on this particular moment in the story says, um, Shifra and Pua were lying to Pharaoh in verse 19, but they did so in service to life and to love. And in doing so, they saved human lives. And perhaps they even saved the one life destined to become the savior of the world. Had you thought about that? That in the very next passage, we will have a woman who will bear none other than Moses himself. 
And we're told that these women were actually given families in blessing from their faithfulness to the Lord. What is Moses trying to tell us? What is he trying to communicate to us? Well, he's communicating that God, even in the midst of the complexities of what it means to walk faithfully, and even when we're not always sure, and even when we say that lie that saves a life, and if you're like me, feel terrible for doing so, and wish you didn't live in a world where you had to compromise between the two lessers of evil or the best between options, neither of which feels particularly satisfying, though one is clearly better than the other, makes me long for the world that Jesus is going to create. Wherein he will invite us into a world where the complexity of sin itself will be no more. And there will be no moral decisions to make wherein we will fail. Even in the right decision, we've somehow fallen short of what full righteousness would look like. Do you see, this lie actually leads us to the truth that each and every one of us need grace all the time. See, the Bible teaches us that even if we were in our righteousness and faithfulness to do the right thing, That right there with our righteousness, sin is crouching. And that even our righteousness is as filthy rags. This ultimately points us, no matter where one lands on the spectrum of lying, it teaches us that we need the truth of the grace of God in Jesus Christ more than anything in the world. You probably know what it's like to be put in a circumstance where you don't like any of the choices available to you. And you either don't have the wisdom to navigate through it or there isn't a path, humanly speaking, for it. And you're forced to go a road that's not necessarily the road that you'd like to travel. But it's the road that's been given to you. With God as your witness, in fear of Him, in the seeking to please Him and the neediness that we all have for grace... You make the best decision that's before you. And you rest in a forgiving and loving God. You see these two women in this this passage. No one's saying they're sinless. But we are seeing God's commendation and blessing of them. And he is teaching us something by that. Look at these women he's saying. Pharaoh, it's not even worthy to name his name. But these two women... They're a picture of the kind of faithful discipleship I'm calling all my people to. Friends, there might come a day where such allegiance is needed from you. Is it a settled conviction of your heart that when you are put at odds in a context where you are forced to do that which is wrong from powers that be, that it's not even a pause in your spirit, that your allegiance is with God and with God alone? Because the time will come in the temptation, maybe through lesser authorities, where you'll be tempted to compromise. Is it a settled conviction? That in grace and in your need of grace, that you will follow the Lord? Let's pray to that end right now. Father in heaven, would you? 
Would you begin to give us such recognition of love in our own hearts for you that making the hard decisions that cost us, making the difficult decision of allegiance in various areas of our life, whether it's with bosses in the company, whether it's with neighbors and friends who are influencing us, whether it is with our own civil government, that it will be a settled conviction of us as your people that we will walk in allegiance with the Lord. Lord, would you settle that in our hearts even now? And would, Lord, in doing so, would you not make us full of hubris or bravado? Would you not make us um, foolhardy and rush out in the flesh to think that uh, we will uh, change the world in our uh, resistance, but help us in humility to know that even in those decisions we need grace and that we need you to go before us. That you, Lord, would be honored in the things that we think, say, and do. Lord, prepare us through this book and through the study of Exodus for being a people who would be faithful to you in our own time. Most of all, that we would have drunk so deeply of the grace made available to us in Jesus through this study that we couldn't even begin to imagine ourselves doing that which the loving Savior has done for us doing that which he has commanded us not to do and in love walking according to his word loving his commands becoming sweeter by the day oh condition us for this oh lord would you and lead us now we pray in jesus name amen